Luke 17, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare me, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Lord, our trust is in you and our confidence is in Holy Scripture that you have truly communicated to us your very heart. We thank you that uh, you have given us a mind and a heart to hear the word of God and to trust in the words that we receive from its pages. Convict us this morning of its truth and convince us and let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds and leave this place differently than we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, um, Luke, up until this point, has spilt a lot of ink telling us that Jesus' ministry is about including outcasts, people who were on the margins of society in the first century from the covenant life of Israel and its temple worship. The sick, the poor, women, tax collectors, prostitutes, people who are on the outer edges of Jewish religious life which means that the people that controlled the covenant life of Israel and temple worship were a small elite bunch. And Jesus' ministry is about changing that. I I can't help but to keep going back to Mary's Magnificat, the song that she sings in Luke 2, where she says, My soul magnifies the Lord because he has given the poor things to eat and sent the rich away empty. This idea of the great reversal that Jesus, through the ministry of Jesus, those who have been ostracized from the faith community are being brought in in this sort of uh, dragnet of the proclamation of the saving power of the gospel, not just for the pure and upright, but for all people. And so Jesus calls this group of people who are new in faith, people who are on the margins, who are coming into the kingdom little ones. They are, they are fragile in their faith. They are fledgling in their walk. And like vulnerable children, they need protection. 
Their faith needs to be nurtured like a small child. They need to be protected. When, when mama has that baby, she wraps that baby up and cares for that baby. And if it's cold and, and mama's got to go outside, that baby is just bundled up. You can't even see the baby's face. And the baby is fed and cared for and tended to. And when baby cries, you know, mommy or daddy or someone is there and the baby is put in a place where it's also protected from harm. It's not going to fall out of the bassinet. There are guardrails up. This idea of caring for this little one who's vulnerable. And that's how Jesus describes those who are coming into the kingdom whose faith is vulnerable. They're like children who need protecting. And he fiercely warns against being stumbling blocks to these people whose faith is fledgling. A couple years ago, I remember a video I saw. It was circulating the the internet, and someone had uh, sold a cell phone to someone else, and on it was a video of the previous owner, who was a health worker, smacking across the face a disabled man in a health facility. And every time this person, this health worker, smacked this person, they would laugh. And it was this gut-wrenching, sickening video that just went viral. Some of you may remember it a few years back. But the public outcry was immediate. Because if you had an ounce of humanity in you, you were disgusted at that image. And if you had an ounce of justice in you, you wanted to see retribution and justice done and that person punished. And so in the same way, God wants us to be careful not to be a stumbling block to those who are vulnerable in their faith, not to abuse those who are weak in their faith uh, by causing them to sin or being an offense to them. And he says in verse 1, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one. So the first point is be careful not to offend others. That's the first point. Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he was cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The way the world is now, the way the world now is until God's final victory over Satan, there are bound to be times when people find their faith tested and tested sometimes beyond what they can bear. And there's no way of avoiding this altogether, but that doesn't excuse anyone who inflicts such a test on someone else. In other words, Jesus is saying, there are going to be things that cause people to sin. There are going to be things in this fallen and broken world until the final consummation that offend us and that weaken us in our faith and cause us to stumble. But woe... A great warning here, a woe to the one by whom or through whom those offenses to sin come through. And in one of the most graphic descriptions of punishment anywhere in the Gospels, Jesus warns that it would be better if a millstone, which is, a, which, which is this large grinding stone shaped around a central hole, to become a collar. It would be better if this massive stone with a hole in the middle be hung around your neck like a collar and drag you to the bottom of the ocean than to suffer the punishment in store for people who upset the faith of those who trust in him. That's a stark warning. That's a stern warning from Jesus. 
Jesus meek and mild and loving, right? We should think of him that way. But he also had words, stern words of warning that those who are vulnerable, those who are the spiritually weakest among us should be upset in their faith or that we would willingly, flippantly, negligently cause others to stumble. You know, there are a lot of people who have given up on the church because of offenses. Um, I was at a church planners retreat last year and I talked to a guy who said that he was a part of a a church in Los Angeles, and their motto was a church for people who have given up on church but not on God. I thought, mm, I don't know. I didn't know how to take that. I didn't know how I understood that, but I got it. I understood what they were trying to accomplish. I hope none of us have given up on the church. We have a very high view of church you know, here, but I understand that there are people who feel like they want to love God, but they've been offended by other Christians. They've been abused, maybe, by leaders in the church. And so there's this warning for us. This is something God takes very seriously. He's telling us to be careful how we treat one another. To be careful what we say about one another. And the example we set for one another by our behavior. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I can, if I asked you individually... Is there a time where you were so offended by somebody in church through the years, or someone, you know, something said to you that it was a stumbling block to your faith? It kind of made you want to give up on the whole thing and just stop going to church altogether, or at the very least, find a new church. Those things happen to us. And offenses are sure to come at times, but Jesus warns us, and this is a this is not just a corporate command, but this is also a command to us individually to watch yourself, how you behave, your attitude, the liberties you have in Christ, that none of those things would weaken or shatter someone else's faith or walk with the Lord. Now, this next statement balances things out if you're the one being offended, right? So number two, secondly, we should be careful to forgive others. Right In verse 3, he says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, not only do humble believers are not to give offense, but we're also not to take offense. I heard somebody one time say, oh, I always forgive people all the time. I always find myself forgiving people. That worries me because that tells me, why are you always so offended, right? I mean, it's good to forgive, but also we shouldn't be quick to take offense, right? Uh, Love does not hold a record of wrong done to it, right? Someone who... Uh, uh, is so fragile in their faith that they're always, this is the flip side of the coin. Be careful not to be an offense to others, but also be careful not to be one who's always offended. Be careful to be one, you know, not to be a person who is who's so fragile that everyone has to turn their lives upside down just to, right, just to make sure you're okay. And Jesus is saying, look, be forgiving, you know, because you can't help but to feel that the person who's, who's always offended enjoys the grudge, enjoys the conflict that someone else has done them wrong. And Jesus is saying, yeah, 
forgive people over and over and over again. Now, in the first century, it was popular with the Pharisees and the scribes and the extra-biblical writings of the day, the Talmud and the Mishnah and all these different writings, that if you were a very godly person, you would forgive somebody three times. This is what Jesus is speaking into. You know, Jesus, he's aware of the literature of the day. He kind of knows the thinking of the people that he's ministering to and speaking to. And this is what he's pushing back against. Because if you think about it, like seven, where's seven come from? It's like a random number. You know, just, he just pulls seven out of the air. But he knows that it's considered, you're considered to be very holy and pious if you forgive somebody three times. And Jesus says, no, no, not three, seven in one day. The point being... Just forgive people, and don't hold a record of how many times you've forgiven them, but be forgiving people. So the person who's been injured by the way other believers have treated, to them also is a mandate from Jesus to forgive. Now, we don't ignore being sinned against. We confront it. So if someone really has sinned against you, Jesus' words is, rebuke them. Now, the word rebuke, is an expression of disapproval. It's a warning, right? Somebody really sins against you. You rebuke them, which, you know, doesn't mean you say, I rebuke you. That's how I grew up. That's what rebuke was. But it was the idea that you would confront somebody. You would say, hey, you've done this, and I want to talk to you about it. Or I've noticed that this is going on in your life, and just as a brother or a sister, I want to say that, you know, God is not pleased with that. You need to repent of that. Now, that doesn't happen a lot in our churches today because we live in such a culture where you, just, you don't say anything to anyone, but the true church, the church that Jesus envisages here, there is church discipline, which means that we would correct each other when we notice someone else is caught in a sin or if they've sinned against us. Now, there's a prescription for this, in Matthew 18, it's up on the screen, and it says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, well, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So if someone's offended you, you're compelled by Scripture not to tell others about it first. You go to that person because anything else is gossip. All right? So if someone offends you, you go to that person. This is the prescription from Jesus. This is the prescription from the Gospels. If someone offends you, you go to that person because as you talk about it innocently, you're actually spreading something around about that person. And Jesus says, you're compelled to go to that person. Anything else is gossip. And if, and only if they won't hear you, you tell someone else that can be trusted not to spread it around, hopefully an elder or the pastor. And you take the next step. But the goal of this four-step process is in keeping in line with Jesus' words here in Luke, which is to confront and restore the sinner... So as, not, so as to guard the church's purity. And so, you know, a lot of our preaching is caught up, and justly so, in making people feel like they belong, like they're welcome, but there is also something to protect in the church, and that's the church's purity. Now, 
This doesn't mean we're trying to hunt out people who sin or be the thought police, right? Because every church is filled with sinners saved by grace, right? This is Martin Luther's maxim, right? Justified at the same time as sinner. So we're, we're all, you know, being sanctified and growing in our faith. So we're not heresy, you know, we're not, we're not you know, sin hunters. Uh, but um, but we are rec- this is a recognition that sometimes things happen in the church where, as an example to the rest of the congregation, if something is unacceptable, like what Paul encountered in Corinthians, where there are all types of, you know, we have children here, there are all types of behaviors that were inappropriate, relational behaviors between people that Paul had to confront and some of the people he had to put out of the church. They refused to yield themselves to the commands of Scripture, and he said, there's the door. Because they threatened the well-being and the conscience and the faith of other believers. So let me just run through this four-step process. This is not what our sermon's about, but since we're talking about it, it's okay to take this little kind of sidestep here, all right? The goal of the four-step process is to protect the church's purity. So the first step is to oppose the sinning brother or sister's behavior in private. Second, should they refuse to repent, the second step involves confronting them again with two or three witnesses present. Third, if they refuse to repent, you inform the whole church so that the entire fellowship can confront and lovingly call them to repentance. And fourth, the final step for a hardened, unrepentant person is to put them out of the church and treat them like an outcast or an unbeliever, which they may well be. If someone does not repent of a sin after being confronted individually or by two or three and then by the entire church and its leadership, you may be dealing with someone who's not truly a believer. Now, the reason this isn't done much in the church today is people often just leave rather than repent and be restored. That's the world we're living in. We're just living in a culture of all these options, right? My cell phone carrier, the rates aren't right. I'm switching to Sprint. I mean, that's just... We just treat the church that way too, sadly, tragically, but that's just how people are. So if you infringe on their emotions or their their sense of privacy and autonomy, they're gone. And that's the tragedy of the age we're living in right now. But biblically and ideally, idealistically, from Jesus' own vision of what the church would be, is that sinners are restored. They're not talked about or slandered. They're not gossiped about in the church, but they're lovingly confronted in private and brought back to a a good standing with the church and the Lord. And some people think, well, why do I need to be in good standing with the church? Because this is the family of God. In the same way, if you got an argument with a sibling or your parents and you had a blowout, you'd hope to come back together and make up, you know? Hey, Dad, I, I spoke to you really crass the other day. I want to apologize. You're my dad. I love you. I'm your son. That's the idea of the church, is we're a family, and we would be restored. When this works, and I've seen it done a couple times, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I've, just, I've seen it work. I, I've seen it work with an with a unfaithful husband, and I saw it work with an unfaithful wife, where over time, and it took sometimes you know, seven or eight months, it's not an overnight process, but those people were brought back into the fold and repented. Um, And so Jesus says, again, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And then third, this is where the disciples have to be careful to recognize weakness. When the disciples hear that they're supposed to forgive seven times 
and should be continually forgiving others, they ask for more faith. You know, Jesus says, you know, if your brother sins seven times and comes back seven times asking for forgiveness, you must forgive seven times in a day. Their response is, increase our faith. This is a lot you're asking of us, Jesus. Increase our faith. You know, this is, this is a lot. Sometimes when, when, when people say things to us about trials or maybe a trial the Lord would put on us or a calling the Lord would put on our lives, we say things like, oh, I don't have enough faith for that. I remember in seminary, you know, people would talk about where they wanted to land in ministry and the topic of church planting would come up and people would always say, oh, I don't have enough faith to be a church planter. And so that's kind of how we look at our faith is you either have a little or a lot, and if you have a lot, you can do a lot, but if you have a little, you can't do much. And Jesus flips that whole idea on its head, and look at what he says in verse 5. The apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith, and the Lord said, look, if you have faith just as the size of a tiny grain of a mustard seed, which is a tiny, tiny little round seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. A mulberry tree, we think a mulberry tree, what's a, what's a mulberry tree? They look like little blackberries, but mulberry trees, especially in the Middle East, the roots go really, really deep. They are extremely deep-rooted trees. And so Jesus is saying that if you have this faith the size of a mustard seed, which of course seeds grow, if your faith is growing, it doesn't have to be huge, if it's small but healthy, all right, let me put it that way. If your faith is small but growing, if your faith is small but being cultivated and, and nourished, you can say to this mulberry tree, which is deep-rooted, to be uprooted and planted in the sea. Now, the context, the context is what? Forgiveness. That's not a green light to say that, you know, right, we tend to think of those commands in scripture as being a green light to say to any situation, right? Faith to move mountains. And that's, we understand what people mean when they say that, but context is important. And Jesus is talking about having the ability to forgive people who offend us, you know, egregiously. That's the context, you know? It's not, um, you know, I want to start a new business, and Jesus is saying, if you've got the faith to move mountains or you've got the faith to uproot this mulberry tree, it can happen. It's not to say that faith isn't involved in business endeavors, but the context is forgiveness. The context here is forgiveness. And Jesus is saying it's not about how much faith you have, but that you have faith at all. Even small faith can do amazing things. Even small faith can draw us close to God and conform us into the likeness and image of Jesus. Even small faith can overcome deep offenses from others. Small faith, a small faith. It doesn't have to be huge. It just has to be small and growing to forgive somebody. And so when you're careful to recognize your weaknesses in faith, you depend completely on Jesus. It's good that we're careful to recognize our weaknesses. We can, it's good to also be bold and confident in the Lord, but it's also possible to be too confident and not recognize our need to depend on him for everything. So we have to be careful to recognize our weaknesses and trust completely in the one who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works in us which is the Holy Spirit. 
And then lastly, number four, we have to be careful to stay humble. And Jesus gives this kind of confusing uh, statement from verses 7 to 10 about if you are the master of a house and your servant is serving you, you'd think nothing about uh, after he's been out in the field all day to calling him into the house and saying, now wait on me. And when I'm done eating, then you can eat. You don't say, now sit at the table because you've earned a place at the table. And this seems weird, like, what? I thought Jesus was, like, making everyone equal. He's simply recognizing something that goes on in the ancient world, which was the master-slave relationship, and is using it as a metaphor to our relationship with God as a way to say, in the same way that a servant who's been working all day comes in at the end of the day, and still waits on his master, even though the, the workday's done. And then after his master's taken care of, he himself sits down to eat. In the same way, after you have forgiven people, after you've trusted and, and, and leaned on the Lord, right, for growing faith and, and sought not to be an offense to others, God doesn't owe you anything. That's, what, that's the point he's trying to make. You have not put God in your debt because you have done these things Jesus just talked about. You are still a servant. And in the same way that a servant recognizes that that master-servant relationship is absolute 24 hours a day, it's the same thing is for us with our walk with God. That after we've been faithful, children, obedient, we've sought not to be an offense to others, we've grown in our faith, we have forgiven other people, now God doesn't owe us. We're not equals somehow with God because we did this hard task of forgiving people. Jesus is saying, this was your duty. This is what it means to walk faithful. This is just what it means to be in fellowship with God. This is what it means to truly be human. You're not doing anything special here. Now, we know that Scripture in other places says that the day will come when God says to us, well done, right? Good and faithful servant. And so God does give us encouragement that we have been faithful, but Jesus is saying here that this may sound like a big thing, but it's really not that big of a deal. This is just what it means to to follow the gospel, to follow Jesus, to walk in his way, to live with him. What's instructive for us is to see that these imperative commands that Jesus lays out is simply our expected duty. You go to work and you put in a a full day's work, whatever your job duty is, whatever the task been given you, and at the end of the day, you don't say, now recognize me. The day is done. I've done all I'm supposed to do. Don't I get a reward? You know, and your boss says, you know, this is what we hired you to do, right? Be glad, you know, that I'm not firing you or whatever. This is what you've been hired to do. This is what you're expected to do. This is what ex- is expected of you. It's not going above and beyond. It's not going the extra mile, even though it feels like it sometimes. This is how people created in God's image are to behave. We're to be mindful of the faith of others so as not to be a stumbling block to them, not to be flippant in our attitudes that we should offend them without thinking twice about it. This is what it means to be created in God's image and live in faithful fellowship with Jesus. We forgive people readily and willingly, but we rebuke them first. The rebuke part is necessary to get people to repent sometimes. Sometimes people don't know that they've offended or that they've sinned or don't realize it, and they need to be confronted, so there's this confrontation. 
But when we follow Christ, we're careful how to live. We're careful how to treat others. We're careful not to offend others. We're careful to forgive. And we're careful to recognize that this is the way of all humble believers. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this word, this rich word to us. As a reminder, these are things we probably think we know. But we need to be reminded every day of these truths, especially as you are sending people into the kingdom and you command us to participate in that clarion call, going out to all those who you have chosen before the foundation of the world. We don't know who they are, but you command us that the gospel would be on our lips at all times, that we would fulfill the great commission to disciple those of every nation. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to be ashamed of the hope that we have in Jesus, not to be ashamed that we follow the Savior, but to boldly proclaim and live out these truths by grace and through the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.